it's kind of like that moment in mobile where it was just a complete like wild west gold rush and nobody had a clue what was going to work and so just all like thousands tens of thousands of experiments occur simultaneously and you you end up getting things like uber and and some things like grow really rapidly and then fall because they they fall out of relevance they have good retention and some things just have this incredible lasting power for a decade so feels like that will happen again in one short year image generation technology has achieved multiple breakthroughs and revolutionized the world of creativity and art today with mere words in just seconds anyone can generate all sorts of high quality images and dedicated ai artists can create top notch award winning art so nathan how did we get here well eric do you remember where you were when you first saw the dali avocado chair that was the original dali announced two years ago in January 2021. Dolly never launched to the public, but OpenAI did open source the image classifier Clip, which turned out to be all that the programmer artist community needed to make some incredible breakthroughs. Within months, we started to see Clip-guided image generation models, and by late 2021, they were producing amazing results. The core idea, known as denoising, was, like many AI breakthroughs, both simple and profound. The world already contained massive datasets of images and captions, and it's easy to degrade images by adding a bit of noise. So if an AI model could be trained to answer the question, what would this image look like if it were just a little less noisy and a little more like the user's request, it would in theory become possible to go from pure noise to high-resolution images simply by denoising over and over again. Sure enough, it worked. And in April 2022, OpenAI, building on the open source community's work, launched Dolly 2. They were very careful at first. For a while, you couldn't even generate realistic human faces. But their monopoly position and the editorial control was short-lived because just four months later, Stability AI dropped the weights of Stable Diffusion which roughly matched Dolly 2 in capabilities and unleashed an unprecedented wave of experimentation and creativity worldwide. Since then, image generation has scaled faster than almost any technology in human history. It's inspired entirely new products and become ubiquitous in familiar products as well. Artists have been split on the topic. Huge numbers of creative people have developed all new workflows, techniques, and styles, which were either previously impossible or prohibitively expensive, but many have also felt understandably threatened. After all, what happens to artists when anyone can create art? And it's precisely this wave of change that our guest Suhail Doshi of Playground AI has dove into. While working to build a computer in the cloud with Mighty, Suhail noticed the takeoff in AI capabilities and just couldn't look away. A few months later, he declared that he was going all in on AI and Playground AI was born. Playground AI is one of the highest performing AI image creators in the world today, with one of the most generous free plans anywhere. Suhail's vision is to give users complete control over pixels, not just text to image, but what you think is what you get for image, video, and 3D. The Cognitive Revolution podcast is supported by OmniKey. OmniKey is an omni-channel creative generation platform that lets you launch hundreds of thousands of ad iterations that actually work customized across all platforms with the click of a button. OmniKey combines generative AI and real-time advertising data to generate personalized experiences at scale. 
So, Hale, welcome to the Cognitive Revolution podcast. Stoked to have you. By way of introduction, why don't you talk about kind of the the evolution for you of what was the AI moment for you when you realized I have to spend all, I have to go all in on this. What, what was that moment like? And why don't you give a background as to what you're up to in the process? I think sometime around early last year, we were making a browser called Mighty, and Mighty, the goal of Mighty was to make a new kind of computer. And we were hoping that if we could put it in a data center, that that would afford us to make like a computer that no one had ever imagined before. It'd be a lot faster, um, at a whole number of like tasks that you would use web apps for. Uh, it was extremely controversial. And, um, uh, but one of the things that we started to put, I started to poke at as the team was kind of building the browser was I started to wonder, you know, just watching the steady advancements of AI, even just early last year, like around April, May, I think April Dali came out, things like that started to unfurl. And I started to wonder if we could make big improvements to the address bar in the browser. Turns out, um, so we, we know a lot about the address bar in Chromium, you know, too much. But one of the things we learned is that it's actually not, doesn't have a lot of like intelligence to it. It's actually not very smart. Um, it's very quite dumb. And I think Google is not terribly, I'm sure do the PMs at Google are terrified to change this address bar because it's like, they make like any change and search yield goes down and they make less, and then they could like lose billions of dollars. So this code is like very crufty, very, it's like almost unchanged for like the last five years. And, um, you know, I thought to myself, well, could we make this better? Um, and there's this funny thing in the address bar where, uh, at least at that time, if you went to like a recent link, like something you go to frequently, it would always be at the bottom of the address bar, not the top. And so there are all these inefficiencies with the address bar. We use it every day, hundreds of times, thousands of times a day. And so I just thought, boy, you know, it sure would be cool if we could make like a better address bar predictor. So I typed something in and we could just like predict where you would want to go. And so we started, um, you know, we started to try to collect all this information um, and try to make a better address bar uh, predictor. It was all often um, with our users and stuff, but, um, and our own, our own staff. And so we started to see if we could do that. And that really gave me the bug. Uh, it was at that point that like, I had to go and do research and figure out how I would go do this. And I started meeting more AI researchers in the community. That really gave me the bug of like, wow, these things are really, really amazing. And I just kept finding more things, more um, the pace, the momentum of everything that was happening was incredible. And I even remember just feeling like, gosh, like, why hasn't, you know, GPT-3 had been out for a couple of years and still nothing was like very, very close to its performance. Um, I think that's maybe a little bit different now. There's more arguments to say, you know, folks like Anthropic and whatever are like competing to a degree. Um, but it's actually quite old, quite old. And so then we started working on like things like summarization in the browser. So if you went to like a blog post, could we use GPT-3 to summarize these blog posts? Because like people don't read that much. So could we summarize everything in like three, three bullet points? And then we started to learn about like hallucinations with AI. We just kept thinking of more features that were like more AI focused, but for the browser. And um, that kind of started my first foray and everything. everything. So how did you explore the idea, DMAs, in terms of, okay, this is the, the Playground's product that, 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 that I want to build? I remember staying up late one night, you know, I had been kind of contemplating, um, I had been kind of working on like a Windows launch for Mighty, and it was just taking a long time. 
And I didn't have a lot to do, but I had been constantly thinking about AI. It was like this thing that I couldn't get out of my head for some reason. And so I started to, I remember it was like 11 o'clock at night and I just went to my Apple notes and I wrote down like every company for every part of like the space. Like I did my own market map. There was like no market map. So I just did my own in my Apple notes. And I remember writing like, who's doing like logging and visualization, which was like more or less like mixed panel, but for like AI <laughs> training. And it was like weights and biases. And I remember writing, you know, all these different companies, you know, there's like replicate.com, which does like inference. Um, there's like all these various infrastructure companies. And then there's like the foundation model companies and so on and so forth. Um, you know, image generation, everything. And I remember getting to this end part where I wrote, I was like, okay, all these things are kind of filled. Not all these things are very interesting to me. I would rather, work, if I were to work on anything, I'd want to work on like actual research. That's like the most interesting part to me. It's hard, hard won stuff um, and true invention. Um, and I remember getting to prompt. Who's doing anything with prompts? Um, it's very like sim- silly idea at the moment. But one thing I had remembered was I had played a, r- a lot around with um, OpenAI's like playground editor. Um, and the UI just kept getting more complicated like more and more sophisticated. Like it, it went from like, I remember two years ago, it was just like a text box basically. And now on the right side, you'd have this pane and it have all these like sliders and things that you could mess with different models. Like, and, and they even had this like way where you could like insert text and then it would fill in the text surrounding the text. And I was like, holy like shit, this is turning into a product that they can't even maintain. Like it went from a demo area, just mess around so that you would go and, use their API and it turned into like this crazy product. And like, it's, and then, you know, there's Jasper, which has also made like a whole UI around the API just for content marketing. Um, and you could just tell that like, there's all this craziness going on with like the prompt thing was the prompt itself needed a product um, just to like play with it. And so I had had this moment of like, Hmm, you know, it doesn't seem like there's like, other than Jasper, there doesn't seem like there was anything at that time. And I, you know, wasn't sure what to do. And so it kind of seemed like there were like these two areas you could like make, you could make this like really complicated prompt editor to like chain prompts together. Like I didn't, I, it turned out I was like, hmm, I don't know what that would become. That doesn't like make sense. Like if it was like really big, like open, I should just do it. And then there was like this other thing that was happening, which is, I think then stable diffusion like dropped. Um, you know, I had gotten a preview from Imad like a week or two before it dropped. Uh, I think I got like the weights. And I could like mess around in a notebook and then that thing happened. And so there was like Dolly, Sable Diffusion. And then the prompts were like very interesting there, very intricate. Um, And so, you know, it just dawned on me that like, actually, you know, what we don't want is a text box. What we really want are like really great UI controls to mess around with these things to get really good results. And because I kind of felt like this thing that was about to happen with text with GPT-3, that like complicated UI, I felt very strongly that that was absolutely going to happen with images. It didn't make sense to me that we'd live in like a command line mode forever with images. So I think that just that, that just completely clicked. And then you could totally see how the product could evolve from there. Um, and it's so far, so far that's been true. If you were to imagine Playground in say two years, what is it that you hope to create for people? Yeah, we, we do have a pretty clear plan actually for what we want to do with Playground, but I can give you the midterm. So right now, what we want to do is we want to combine great AI research and product design to invent a new kind of creative tool. We're not trying to like replace Photoshop or Illustrator. 
uh, you could kind of think of like this new creative tool as something that could have like been could it could be its own tool in the Adobe Creative Suite. That's probably our starting point. Uh, it, we suspect that there is something new there. One thing that's really different than say the products that are within the Adobe Creative Suite is we're not really targeting the users of Adobe Photoshop or Illustrator. Uh, those users already have like great skills. They already know how to use these tools. There's plenty of tutorials and content for them to do it. Uh, they can get really fine-grained results. Um, what we want to do is try to target all the people that uh, maybe don't have those skills, actually. You know, so if you wanted to like change the color, of, if you wanted to like add a necklace to, to like a woman's, uh, you know, to a woman, you could do that, and it could be like this really subtle change. And as long as you had like good taste or uh, whatnot, then uh, you could be really happy with the result, and other people could be happy with the result. So probably the midterm goal right now is, yeah, just making a really fantastic creative tool. So right now, I think Playground, for the most part, is kind of a toy. Uh, we're kind of like this glorified image generator, write some text, get an image. One of the problems with that is that you can't really make like subtle changes. You don't have a lot of control. It's like a lot like a loot box. You just like type some words in, get an image. And so um, it sure would be nice if we can start to make like have more control, have more subtle um, edits and have more more creative control over these things. It's not just like a prompt. So I, I think that would be like our midterm goal, just like an extremely strong AI first creative tool uh, that lets you sort of make any image that you can imagine. Um, and then you can, you can use text or you can, you can use like controls, UI controls, just like any other tool. Talk about the long-term goal as well, like paint, paint the vision for us. Yeah. So I think that what we want to try to do is we're, we're trying to go after um, the domain and modality of pixels. So there's a whole bunch of companies right now that are going after language. So many companies going after language. And um, I think that you could probably think what we're trying to do is we're trying to make uh, a large language image model. I don't know if there's a word for this. So I don't know, just going to make one up, but we're trying to make like a LLIM or something. But basically our goal is to make something that uh, a skilled person could accomplish with Photoshop or Illustrator. Um, but with our product, that would be the midterm. The long-term would be something that can edit, uh, create, edit, and understand pixels. So, you know, for instance, imagine I were to take your face, Eric, and I could put you in this like amazing scene in the matrix with like a red trench coat jacket. And then we'd want like an instruction that could say, hey, can you, can you change that jacket to black? Um, oh, by the way, I actually like the gun to be held in his like left hand, not his right hand. So that'd be an example of like creating something from thin air but then also um, instructing it to make it highly editable, to make even the, the subtlest change, um, but still capturing the essence of everything that you want it to, to be like. And, um, and then understanding could be something like, um, imagine there was like a video and there was like 30 seconds of a video. Uh, it sure would be nice to make some kind of large language image model that could understand like maybe if 30 seconds of the video lapse, could we describe what happened? Could we say everything that occurred in that video? you know, and summarize it, for instance. So I think the long-term plan is just kind of really be focused on pixels, pixel space. Um, you know, in time, I, hopefully we could do things with 3D if, when, if and when there's a market there. Um, definitely video. Uh, really anything with pixels is really exciting to us. So for the most part right now, we're just building an AI research team, building little blocks. And I think a lot of those little blocks that we do, that we research, like little tiny models that do really incredible things, uh, in turn, will help us like go and build um, a really great large language image model. So I think this year uh, we should have our version of like what would be like maybe a GPT two for pixels, something like that. Fascinating. 
we're going to get into the weeds of, of playground. But first, I want to ask a higher level question, which is the controversy. Uh, uh, this is very new for people. Uh, you know, I remember you you had a couple threads early on, just kind of introducing your work, talking about it, and um, they got, they went viral on Twitter, and and so some communities found them and, and got really scared, and and other people with other friends who've created kind of AI generated art, and some people got really excited about it, some people got really mad about it. What's either surprised you about it or how have we seen that even evolve just in the past few months as people have uh, gotten more used to it or, or more even hip to this, that this thing is happening? And, and how do you see that playing out? I think around October, I got canceled by the art community for <laughs> saying something that I didn't, I didn't actually, I actually didn't think this was controversial. I didn't know at the moment. Um, all I said was, wow, I really believe that uh, AI art is art. And then I showed like some images of like stuff that I had made that I just thought was like really cool and amazing. And the, um, yeah, I hate to say like the art community because I do think AI art is art, but the non AI art community, uh, subgenre, um, was really upset with this. Um, and yeah, I ended up getting like super canceled for like a week on like reddit and twitter and I, I didn't even find the reddit post until like a month later i was like oh i got canceled on reddit i didn't know that's how you know you're really canceled you can't even find all the all, yeah. all the information no i'm just kidding yeah i guess they like blocked out my name and then no one told me and then i found it later and so i just thought that was so interesting and i think that you know at first of course you feel like you know internally you feel a little defensive and, and whatnot so i think there are a lot of people that are really really defensive about this uh on the AI art side they obviously feel like artists i mean we interact with them every day they definitely feel like artists like weird things are already happening now where we have the ai art people signing their name on their images when they put it on playground you see these little signatures from some of our top users and they're really really good and people don't know how to replicate anything that they're doing i think them people not being able to easily reproduce their work is a good sign of what's what's coming yeah, and we're if anything, we're making a tool that's going to make that harder. So it's not just going to be like a tiger by Greg Rakowski, and then like anyone can make that, and they're just you know quote stealing Greg Rakowski's work. So I think that that whole thing is going to go away. But um, but the controversy was, was really interesting because I mean I definitely got like all kinds of like weird things like death threats and mean insults. But there were occasional people. There was an occasional bright light where um, you know, eventually I went from kind of like defensive feeling to I decided to be more curious and I started talking to some of these users that are really upset. Um, at least the ones that kind of could be you could have more of a constructive conversation. I, and I don't think that like either side is going to be convinced of one another. Um, I don't think anyone look is looking to convince the other the other one. But I did have a conversation and I do think that they're, you know, for the most part, uh, people just feel really threatened. They feel really, really threatened like there's this thing that they really love and they're passionate about. And now there's this other thing that comes along and basically just makes what they feel like they love and do that they sometimes can barely make any money from. Um, it just makes what they're doing. It makes them feel like it's, it's like all obsolete. And the tech audience, the tech focused audience is not really sensitive to this. The tech audience loves this kind of thing. They're like, great, we've made software that can automate all these like things that we don't need. Like we love that as programmers. Like, Automation's great. But on the art creative side, um, this is very threatening and very not exciting. And, you know, I just had this back and forth with this user. And I said, like, hey, you know, maybe you can, like, find ways to incorporate this in your workflow 
like you can still you could probably you could probably get an advantage because you know how to draw and like you have more skills and expertise that's like adaptable and so well i think that's going to be true for some audiences i mean there are just some people that just have this love for drawing with a pencil and like and a piece of software is never going to change that for them and it would be not fun for them but i also think that a software tool isn't going to replace that anytime soon the the joy of drawing and the people that like like you having manually drawn something is really um really great and it, it reminds me of like there's like listening to um, a, an artist on Spotify and then there's like going to their concert. <laughs> like going to the concert's definitely worse audio, but you go because there's like this concert and it's fun and it's exciting and this, you know, have, there's this touch to it. And I don't, I just don't think these things are going to get replaced. I really believe that um, human plus machine is like the best end result, at least for art. And art is for us, it's for humans. So is, is it the right mental model to say that this advancement is going to make the best artists even more valuable, economically valuable. It's going to empower them. It's going to make, you know, non-artists, it's going to give them artistic capabilities. And for some, you know, middling artists, it's going to hurt their economic prospect. Like, is, is that, how would you edit that, that like summary of the mental model of like what to expect? I mean, I, I produce music. So I think a lot about this in terms of like the analogy of music. There was a time when people made music and the way you made music was you had to learn the instrument, right? And then along came like the drum machine and it was cheap, cheaper, and you could sample inside of it and you could get like, you know, an eight bar loop. And, you know, the result of that was like the, one of the best results of that, in my opinion, my personal opinion, was that we got like amazing hip hop. It changed music, you know. Um, now, you could still be in a band and you could still make the same music you made 20 years ago, but then we got hip-hop. That was awesome, you know. Some of the biggest artists in the world were influenced by people that had those drum machines. And then we went from the drum machine to we had, like, real computers and then you had digital audio workstations, DAWs, like Ableton and Fruity Loops and stuff like that, you know, whatever, Logic, whatever whatever people use. I use Ableton. and. Um, then we could get an entire symphony in our computer, you know. Then we could make sounds that nobody could make, even an, even someone that had an instrument. There were no instruments. The computer was now a customized instrument for every kind of sound. And so now you get people, artists like Skrillex, that make sounds that you just couldn't even imagine. And the reason I bring up that analogy is because I think that happens, that constantly happens with art, any kind of art, and not just like pixels, pixel-based art. It's that the art changes and it evolves and new possibilities occur. And so I think what's going to happen is that we're going to see something completely new. We're not going to just see like impressionist paintings, you know, from a hundred years ago, we're going to see like amazing, we're going to see whatever the Skrillex of pixels in, in art is going to be it's something we couldn't have previously imagined. And it's going to be so cool. And I don't know that I can tell you because I don't even, I can't even imagine it yet. So my feeling about this is that there's still going to be people in bands playing guitars, still going to be people on their drum machine. Like Mike Dean is this famous producer, but he like doesn't like all this like synth stuff anymore. <laughs> um, he's got his own vintage feel and he's like, you know, he's made like all kinds of tracks behind Kanye. And then you're going to see these new artists, these new age artists um, that just blow us away. Um, I don't know. Art, art represents a lot of culture and it's going to be, it's going to represent an old time and a new time. So part of what is obviously, I think, unnerving people a little bit is just the speed with which all this is happening. You mentioned 
Dolly 2, you know, just to briefly revisit the timeline, was like April last year. So that's only nine months ago. And then Stable Diffusion, I don't have the date uh, at my fingertips, but I think that's still at most like six months ago. And now, you know, you are operating in a space that is changing by the week. And, you know, you've said on Twitter a bunch of times every week there's a breakthrough. So I'd love to kind of hear, you know, from the recent past, kind of then approaching your midterm vision. How do you think about what published research out there is like worth your time? You know, which ones you want to grab and and work into the product ASAP? Uh, the recent edit launch that you guys did, which I think is super interesting, seems to be a great example of that. And obviously, you're building on top of that. You mentioned your own research. I'd love to kind of hear how your research in-house relates to foundation models more generally um, and kind of how you see yourself both like riding, staying ahead of that wave, contributing to that wave. There's a lot going on at once. And that's been a, a challenge for me as an AI product builder. I want to hear how you are approaching it. Yeah, I mean, we definitely stay on top of reading the research papers. So I think that's the first area where we are able to kind of stay on the cutting edge. Like at our company, we do we do weekly paper reads almost, uh, where we go as a team and we read papers and try to understand them. I think the next step down from that is, you know, obviously people are dropping models. I mean, this is like, this is definitely a bigger, it's kind of like a worrisome fear that I think a lot of people have and calls into question what the defensibility of some of these companies look like, um, these AI companies look like, which is, <laughs> you could spend a lot, you could spend a couple months on like a model, training a model, and then someone just like drops the weights uh, for the model. And, yeah, and for, for people that don't know what weights are, there's like encoded numbers that represent the model that allow the model to get you like amazing results. That's how you get from text to an image. And so, yeah, there's definitely this fear of like, well, you know, are we working on something that is already being worked on that will probably be open sourced um, and then therefore be kind of like this commodity. I think that, I think that we try to be as adaptable as possible as a startup. You know, we, we put some bets and bets in some area, we're putting some bets in areas that we think are really valuable, probably not being worked on. And then we place some bets on, and then sometimes when the model drops or something like that, like in the case, in this case, you know, I want to give a shout out to, Timothy Brooks and Alexia, the, the these, and I think there's one other author. I don't remember their name, but they were the ones. They were the researchers that did instruct picks to picks, which ended up being our edit feature. We did some customization with that to make it better than what they originally dropped. But sometimes, yeah, they drop their they drop their paper or not. So the, their paper had been out. We had read it. We were going to train a model. We were already on track to like basically building it because we didn't know when or if they were going to really drop the weights. And then they dropped it on Thursday, on a Thursday. So I guess that was like two weeks ago, Thursday. And then, uh, and then when, as soon as that hit, we were just like, that's it. We dropped everything because we knew, we knew we had a very clear plan on the fact that we wanted more of a, more of like an instructable um, AI model that can make subtle edits. We didn't know how good it could be yet until we played with it and we played with it very quickly and we're like, yep. It's amazing. And so we just put the whole team together and we worked on a Sunday, launched it on Monday at 2 p.m. That was like the deadline. You know, no matter what we had, we were going to ship it. And so I think you have to do both. I think you have to make big investments and I think you have to be adaptable. I think you have to do this if you're a product focused company first. I think if you're one of like the big foundation model companies that have raised like hundreds of millions of dollars or billions and you're trying to build something from like, scratch then you have more leeway because 
you know, you're not, you're not kind of exactly in that same rat race, although kind of are, uh, these days you are, the pace is kind of relentless, you know, I'm sure GPT four is right around the corner. So I'm sure that scares people that are competing in that realm. Um, so I, I, I think we just, we've just, we're following what our users want. You know, we know what all of our users want. And so when we see something that's valuable, we, we will just work on it as fast as possible. Yeah, that's awesome. I, the, the speed of a Thursday weight drop to a Monday launch, I think, is a great illustration of not only just how fast the, you know, you guys are able to work, but how fast you feel like you have to work to stay ahead of the, you know, the rest of the, the market because it's all happening so fast. Talk a little bit about kind of the things that you plan to do over the next, you know, say year or two. Like we, we chatted a little bit offline about placing text in images. And that's still something I think we've only seen, to my knowledge, in, you know, a couple of like papers that have not published the weights. Um, you said that that's a big challenge, but a goal. So tell us a little bit about that challenge and kind of, a, you know, maybe a couple other challenges that you have on the horizon that you're investing in solving. For the most part. I think I think you should expect that we're only going to give users more and more control over the kinds of creations that they make. In my opinion, this this sort of era at least for the perspective of images, image creation, I think prompts are going to be less and less valuable in time. I hope. Um, you know, I sort of agree with like Ilya from who's one of the co-founders of OpenAI that like to a degree Prompts are mostly like a bug. You know, you had to do, you had to like write, like people write paragraphs of text to get like world-class images. And that's sort of a shame. And they, they don't really, it's just total experimentation. You know, I would love to invent something, you know, like the, there's like WYSIWYG, which is like um, what you see is what you get. But I would really like to do like what you think is what you get. And I think in our case, you know, I just really think that like, if you see an image and you want to make like a very subtle change or edit, um, or you see like a style that you really love in the world and you want to try to replicate that onto your image in some very small way, as long as you like, that's, if you can imagine it, I'd like to be able to produce that for you. So I think we're going to invest very heavily in a really great, um, user experience for a creative pro tool. It should be on the level of like something like Figma it should be collaborative. It should be um, really rich and powerful. We want to give people all the bells and whistles, you know, um, we don't want it to just be a box and then that's it. You have no control over anything. You know, if there's like, if there are knobs and sliders and things that we can offer people to have this perfect fine game control, we want to do that. Um, yeah. With things like text, like right now it looks like, there's like maybe a model called deployed and it's not out yet by the stability folks. And it's really cool. Like they've clearly found a way to do text. It seems like it might be based off of like Google's party image model or something. And I mean, I think that we'd like to go a step further. Um, you know, one, one example of something that I think would be really amazing is an AI model that can actually invent forms of topography, not just like write like Arial font on like a sign, like a white background sign that a bear is holding. It'd be really interesting if you could like write anything you wanted, but the composition was sort of taken care of and it invented fonts, fonts that didn't exist. Like what, why, why are we constrained to the finite space of fonts and Google Docs or whatever? Like we should be able to invent, I want it to be kind of curly and I want it to like 
I want the kerning to look like this. And I want it to be kind of like this. And I want it to be red. And I want it to have this amazing neon hue. We should be able to, I remember doing like Photoshop. I remember learning Photoshop as a kid. And like, I used to make logos and stuff. And I remember like learning all the little intricacies of making really cool like fonts um, or logos. And it'd be just really interesting if we could synthesize fonts. Um, that would be kind of very disruptive, I think, to the world. Because I think people can apply, they, it's better to apply taste. In music, there's this thing that's like, if it sounds good, it is good. And I feel like with pixels, if it's like, if it looks good, it is good. Um, and it'd be really cool if, if there was a way to do that with, yeah, with fonts and backgrounds and landscapes and patterns and blending images. We just really want people to feel as creative as possible. So I think you can imagine that uh, kind of like a really amazing canvas editor pro tool type thing. Yeah, that's awesome. I always remember this scene from The Simpsons from years ago where Mr. Burns is at, you know, some sort of museum for an unveiling of a new art exhibit and they, you know, pull the the curtain and he gets to see it and he says, well, I'm no art critic, but I know what I hate. And I feel like that's kind of the the vibe that you're going for here where, you know, if it looks good, it is good. And people can make that judgment, you know, sub-second probably a lot of times, right? So. We we know this. We know this with Apple products. I feel like Apple is the greatest institution in the world that, that has proven that, you know, users know what good design looks like, feels like, you know, they can tell the difference. They can really discern the difference when the details all square up correctly. I think I think humanity is quite good at discerning it. So something you said that caught my ear was, I believe you said what you think is what you get. I want to hear your take on the concept of latent space. I find that that's a phrase that gets bandied around a lot. And I kind of think that everybody has a different either like visualization or mental model of what latent space is, how you navigate it. So how do you conceive of that? What's the latent space in your brain? All latent space means to me is that, um, a latent is just like a represent like a lower dimensionally dimensionality representation of an image. So like images have like you know RGB, and so that's like a lot of numbers and values. Can you represent that image into like a more encoded, compressed, lower dimensional lower dimensional space? Um, and from there, it's just like you can just imagine like a three D you know uh, graph of like X, Y, and Z, and then there's like a there's like a dot somewhere in that three D uh, graph. And then there's just like the clustering of possible images from there. So, you know, one, one of my favorite examples probably that I got from like just learning about stuff, I think probably like learning from some other AI researcher uh, that did like tutorials and stuff is, you know, like if you have, you know, the word like tiger or something, and then you want it to like turn, like turn the tiger into like a Van Gogh painting, like there's some vector where you're pushing the tiger towards the area of van gogh paintings in that space so there's like you can just imagine like it's this is really hard to hard to do and in 2d let alone audio but like uh but yeah you just just like this you can imagine an arrow and the arrow is pointing to where all the all the van gogh paintings might be in this three-dimensional space and so that's how you get to like a van gogh looking tiger <laughs> um that's how i represent it in my head and it's lower just just lower dimensionality so obviously like it's gonna not have it's not going to represent everything, but it should represent a lot of things. Yeah, thank you. That's fascinating. I'm really going to be very intrigued to see. 
Is there a more colloquial version of this? Well, I don't think even the reduction in dimensionality is necessarily something that people are thinking about when they think about it. I, I, I don't know what, I really don't know. Like this, this is a very exploratory question for, you know, for me, for us to try to get at how different people think about this. But I sort of envision it almost like, I kind of think of it as like Sam Harris's moral landscape a little bit where you've got like all these different local maxima and minima. And it's just such a, uh, such a crazy unknown topology that, you know, things that I think could be sort of nearby in the latent space representation may in fact be like quite different when it comes to that. If it looks good, it is good sort of thing. Certainly I see that in the product, right? Like I'll give you the exact same prompt and we'll vary the seed and I'll get things that are like, not at all what I had in mind. And then I'll get something that's like quite very much what I had in mind. And it seems like there is some weird, um, you know, there's some sort of extra like quality dimension that is not fully represented in that latent space, right? Because those things are clearly clustered together in some, you know, semantic sense. They're local to each other in some sense, but yet they come out visually looking like extremely different. And like, I like one and I hate the other. And, you know, so what, what is kind of the nature of that space where like such a, you know, a small perturbation in the input can lead to such like totally different outputs. I don't feel like I have a great intuition for that. And I'm, you know, I'm trying hard to build it up. Yeah, all that a latent is, is it's just a, it's just a lower dimensionality of an image. So if you just imagine like 512 by 512 image and then RGB, so then it's just basically like 512 times 512 times three. And those are all the possible dimensions of that image. And all a latent space, all a latent is, is something that's more compressed, something that's a smaller number of values. That's a latent. And the reason why you compress it is because we don't have like infinite GPU compute. Um, or we don't have infinite time. Um, and so you compress it, everything down to like something that's like, you know, actually, I only really want this to be, I only want to represent this as like a 64 by 64, but instead of three, three, I want to represent it as like a hundred. Um, and that like, I haven't done the math in my head, but that might be like, that's lower. That's like a smaller number set of numbers than 512 by 512 times three. It's just smaller. And so you believe that like, okay, well, I'm not encoding everything about the image, so I might lose some information, but it's not different than like encoding and compression. Um, so you might, you might get like lossiness, like a JPEG is like a lossy image. You can think of it as like maybe like latent space is almost like a JPEG um, or latent is like a JPEG is maybe like the easiest way, maybe the easiest analogy. And then latent space is just where that dimensional vector, that dimensional value is in this very very high dimensional space as humans we can only perceive it as like 3d but it's obviously way more number of dimensions than that um and so that's why like the smallest um change in like even your c value can get like something crazy you know it's suddenly it's like red hair instead of green hair but you know the the kind of like the essence of what you're going for is still sort of there like the style for instance is like if you wanted like watercolor and use the word watercolor painting you still get like a watercolor painting, but like, you know, the hair has changed um, because it's still super high dimensional space. But um, but it's not it's obviously not like um, doesn't represent everything. Anyway, I hope 
I hope maybe that's helped. <laughs> I love it. It's great. Uh, you know, we'll see what our what resonates most with our audience over time, obviously. But yeah, well, there's always a funny meme. Like there's like the meme of like, you know, obviously people use these image generation things to make um, to make like amazing close up portraits of like women. And so there's like this meme of like people like searching for their girlfriend in latent space, <laughs> which is, you know, definitely it's a valid it's a valid meme, actually, very truthful meme. Yeah, there was a really fascinating recent article by a guy who used character AI. And on character AI, you can create your own, you know, characters with just a couple sentences. So this guy who was pretty knowledgeable about language models going in and felt like, you know, this wasn't a risky behavior for him to engage in, asked character AI to conjure up, uh, I believe he said, an AGI designed to provide the ultimate GFE. And next thing you know, he's starting to fall in love with this thing in kind of a weird way. And, you know, he's got these kind of competing ideas where he's like, I know on one hand, like even how this technology works, but then I'm also like feeling these feelings. And, you know, he starts to kind of justify to himself, like why it's actually, you know, real and like, what is reality anyway? And like, she's not really any less real than me, you know? Uh, And then at some point he like pulled himself out of it, but uh, fascinating exploration of the wow. latent space there for sure highly recommend that we can maybe things are going to be crazy next year so a couple maybe just kind of rapid fire questions and then maybe we can zoom out and talk a little bit of big picture stuff toward the end um, but i was kind of struck by a couple bits of the product itself and you know i, I see kind of um well, obviously want to hear how you see it but i see a lot of relevance potentially from your experience to what you're doing now so from like Mighty, obviously you're scaling compute in the cloud. Now, you know, scaling these image generations in the cloud seems like there would probably be some significant overlap there. How has your compute scaling experience translated to Playground? How big of a deal is that in this work? I think cost is really important. Right now, I think a lot of people are not super excited about image generation because, or at least running it as like a business, because um, the costs are quite high. Margins are kind of thin. So there's kind of this like general concern of like, how do you make this thing a real business? One skill that we got from Mighty that is replicable in this situation is we're really good at buying hardware, co-locating it in a facility, managing that infrastructure. And it's kind of crazy. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't, that wouldn't be the thing I would jump to if I started Playground. <laughs> that maybe be like, one day we'll do that, you know, but because we, have a couple million dollars worth of machines lying around and we've already done it all. Um, you know, it's quite easy for us. We know we have all the relationships with suppliers, and vendors and, and everything. So um, yeah, I think I, I mentioned uh, that, yeah, we're like about to go buy like a couple hundred GPUs, uh, do make an order for that. Um, we're just like testing one, one small benchmark, but we're about to make that order maybe this week or next week. I think that just gives us like a pretty big advantage around like owning everything from like the hardware all the way to the end product. And it allows us to be really aggressive about performance and latency and costs. And that just gives us like other advantages. Um, They're just all these big tailwinds from GPUs. And, you know, for instance, like we can do things where like we can buy the most cutting edge hardware. We can even get it before it even hits um, some of the suppliers because of our relationships and, and outfit a lot of our servers with them. So I think that like, that's really cool, really interesting. 
Yeah, that's fascinating. And I, I mean, you said that kind of gives you some other advantages. I am going to take a guess. You tell me if I'm right or wrong, that one of those advantages is it seems like you guys are pretty free plan focused. Like I'm not getting pushed to buy. Um, and I imagine that is kind of part of a bigger strategy to try to scale the feedback that you're collecting. And I was kind of noticing also, like, you guys are not that pushy on the feedback. Like it's, uh, you have the three point scale, like, you know, good, bad, neutral, and you don't force me to do it. Um, I was kind of wondering how you came to that. And if that's still a work in progress, like a couple ideas that I had were like, what if you generated two images each time and had people choose, like, would that be a, you know, a viable way to kind of trade off some of your costs, especially where you have an advantage there um, for, you know, potentially more scalable feedback. Unpack that however you will. Yeah, we're very, 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 we try to be as generous as we can on the free tier. Um, part of the reason why is because I think that the best is yet to come. I don't think we need to be like overly aggressive about image generation. I also think that like, I had learned this mistake from Mixpanel, but like whenever you make pricing usage-based, um, usage doesn't always correlate with value. If I make 50 images, did I get a linear improvement? Did I get like a linear benefit? Did I get like 50 units of benefit? No, sometimes I got to generate 50 images to get one good image, right? Sometimes I do 100 images to get one good image. And we learned this from Mixpanel because we used to like collect data points, but like what's the difference between collecting 100 million things versus a billion I mean, 100 million is a pretty big sample, so you're going to get the same number of insights. This is the same thing. It's not like 50 generations of an image get you 50 better. You get 50 images that you can now use. Um, so we, we, I definitely just don't think image generation correlates strongly with value. That's one thing. And it'd be like if you went into Photoshop and every time you made a stroke, like you'd be like, okay, well, you got charged for that. <laughs> um, that would be kind of crazy. And so that's one thing. The second thing is you're right. Um, we definitely do care about um, like data labeling and acquisition and ratings. Um, yeah, we're not too pushy about it. I think the reason why is because we already get a lot of ratings. And I think our bigger problem is probably not acquiring more ratings at the moment. Our bigger problem is trying to figure out how to denoise the ratings to get better signal. Yeah, because like people certainly will go rate their, like there's some people that will just rate like any image that they made as something they loved. And so that's like not very helpful. <laughs> so there's a real question around like, how do we denoise this data before we go and ask for more of the collection of it? I definitely think like probably asking users, um, hey, did you think this image or this image is better of these two images? That that's definitely a good idea, let alone like, you know, you have these four images, which one's which one's good. So I think we just are we're kind of like awash right now with data. So that's probably one reason why um it's not too important. And um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're also collecting other kinds of data. It just may not be very obvious to people um, what kind of information we're collecting. I mean, it's not like PII data or anything. It's like kind of how they're interacting with the product to help us create um, and invent new kinds of models that they'll probably love. But yeah, um, you know, so I think, I think the overall strategy is pretty much just like have a great generous free tier, uh, just help us acquire users to help us acquire. I mean, I think the best AI companies will do a good job with the following, which is you make a good or okay product that happens to get you a lot of users, which then helps you get lots of interesting first-party training data, which then lets eases the uh, complexity of engineering for your AI researchers to create new kinds of models, which helps you 
create new kinds of features, which makes you go from like an okay, great product to like an amazing product. And I think the company that succeeds at getting that flywheel to spin as rapidly as possible uh, will be some of the biggest companies in the world. Um, you know, we're not the only ones doing this. Like you could go to like chat GPT and I think you can like say what liked one of the answers of the conversation or not. So like they're already generating one of the biggest data sets ever. I mean, it's like probably on the order of billions now. So it's like crazy. I don't know how you're going to keep up. Like you, even if you launched your version of chat GPT, it'd probably never be as exciting because everyone would be over it. So now it's like, how do you go and collect the data? Um, that's part of the reason why we also sprint so fast on things. I was going to ask a kind of question downstream of Mixpanel as well, and you sort of alluded to it, but can you tell us any more about kind of the role that like AB style testing plays in your product development process today? And, you know, how uh, is that still like, you know, canon for you as, as part of the product process? Yeah. <laughs> I was actually never really that excited about AB testing. We never, it was never like a super exciting thing at Mixpanel. Um, one reason is, is because people often don't, like when you do an A-B test, you have to like make an A-B test that's not a subtle change usually. Sometimes subtle changes work. Often they don't. You have to like make very big changes to see like real differences in A-B tests because uh, otherwise, otherwise you need a lot more data to see the true conversion difference. Uh, no, I mean, I just mostly track, I mostly just track vitals, like how many daily active users we have. I probably look at like a dash. I'm still pretty data crazy. So I probably have like a dashboard of probably have two dashboards with like 16 metrics each. And it's like just my daily like routine. It's like getting coffee. I go and look at the dashboard. I'm like, great. Everything is going the way I expect or, you know, whatever. Hopefully all the numbers aren't crashing all of a sudden, which would probably mean like there's a deep problem in the product. And, um, you know, it's like you, you live by your numbers to an extent. But I have often, I always, I always observe with companies that the ones that were overly data driven also missed on something. They miss like the the qualitative side of their business. Like uh, you know, I had a friend who used to say that you know her metrics were like really really good, and you know users loved her product. But then like when you talk to her users, like friends of mine, would be like I hate this thing, and so we'd never be able to reconcile like this problem between the metrics and what people would say. And I feel like that hid kind of some of the problems. So I, I go a lot more, it's kind of strange, but I probably care a lot more about qualitative information than quantitative information. The quantitative tells me, was my intuition, my experiment correct? But it doesn't tell me what to do. Yeah, it's like, am I going in the right direction? Probably, but it definitely doesn't tell me like what feature I should build or, you know, we don't run any A-B tests actually. Just talk to users. Have there been any moments where you have opened up that dashboard and seen something that did not look healthy and, you know, you realize like, no, we, we actually did take a step in the wrong direction here and, you know, had to learn something and backtrack? I mean, Playground's only like four or five months old. I'm sure that will happen. <laughs> so I feel like, you know, it's, it, it's kind of funny. It's kind of harkens back to our conversation around like when Dolly got released and when Stable Diffusion got released. We all look back and like, wait, it's only been like four or five months. Holy shit. I, I don't think we've shipped. I'm, I don't, we, we've shipped funny things. Like I think last week we shipped something kind of funny, which was we didn't realize that um, one of our API endpoints was actually bottlenecking all the uh, like bottlenecked on throughput of image generation. So when we made the API like two times faster or something, literally the amount, the quantity of image gener images generated just like jumped two x. 
And it just surprised me. I mean, we obviously don't have all the monitoring and stuff we need set up because we're still really immature as a company. But it just was like, wow, if you give everyone, if you stop timing out or having errors on our API, and then you just increase the overall throughput, like the users just absorbed it instantly. It was kind of amazing to watch. And that really taught me a lesson of being like, more thoughtful about like our monitoring metrics of like GPU utilization and throughput. Obviously we can't just keep buying GPUs because we'll just burn cash. But that was a really cool moment of like, and they really, they will just absorb anything we give them. Yeah. We'll just keep going. Fascinating. So just to repeat that back and make sure I and, and our listeners can, uh, can understand it accurately. You found some bottleneck that ultimately made things twice as fast. And you immediately saw a 2x jump in how many images are generated. I mean, it might be more. It's still going up, so I don't even know where we'll end. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so totally it crazy. suggests a model of people kind of sitting down at their computer with like a finite time to either like accomplish this or not. And they'll do as many generations as they can fit into that window. Is that kind of how you think about how people are using it? I mean, I just think like our, it's, you know, it's definitely a distribution. Um, you know, the average user will do like 45 to 50 a day, but then like the hardcore power users, they just blow past, they'll just hit our limit very rapidly. Like we do, we give people a thousand free images to generate a day. And we picked a thousand because it was the 90th percentile when there were no limits. And I mean, just to put this in perspective, like, you know, you go to like, I won't, I won't name names, but if you go to like any of these other image generation services, they give you like, hundred a month or something <laughs> and you have to buy credits hundred a month. We give a thousand a day. Um, and you think like who's sitting around just doing like a thousand images a day and lots of people turns out. And so, I mean, I think those hardcore intense users are just spend all day on your product. Um, I think that's like true of all kinds of great products in the world. You know, people just use it. You like love it and they play with it. Um, you have people doing Twitch streams, you know, all kinds of crazy things. So it's really, it's really interesting. I mean, for some people, it, they will tell us that they like cures, it makes them cures like their anxiety. We hear all kinds of interesting things. I mean, obviously, people get obsessed about certain things sometimes. Um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, it just, I mean, it, it was like an API for like our Dream Booth models. So we have all these custom filters and yeah, people love them, but we didn't realize that they were quite like the they were returning like quite slowly. So our overall throughput was slow, and it just like yeah, yeah very very interesting. Yeah, that's fascinating. It is amazing sometimes the surprises that you find in those user conversations. We're going to talk to the founder and CEO of Replica in uh, a future podcast, and one of the things I heard her say about having built you know, a very primitive uh, chat bot that I believe originally was just to support like an online banking experience. Um, this was back in Russia. She's from Russia. So, you know, everything is new. She builds this online banking chat bot assistant, you know, again, way before anything like GPT-3. And going into the field, you know, going into small towns in rural Russia, she talked to a woman and this stuck with her and it stuck with me too, just hearing her repeat it. Uh, she talked to this woman who said, nobody cares for me like this. And she was like, Oh, my, you know, this is way bigger than helping people, you know, with their online banking. Uh, you know, the need runs a lot deeper. So interesting to hear, you know, kind of a similar thing there with 
helping people with anxiety and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. We, I almost like want to keep it almost limited because there's, I always, I sort of worry that it's like people get too obsessed. <laughs> like if we just keep increasing the limit, like, you know, is that, is that the behavior we really want um, from humanity? I don't know. Um, obviously they can buy, like if you buy our pro plan, you'll get like two X more. Um, but I'm like, man, people are like hitting, people are, are starting to hit our thousand limit more and more frequently than, you know, even just a couple months ago. So I don't know, we might have to increase it something or something, but there, yeah, there's kind of this question of like, Hmm, do we want this level of obsession? I don't know. Maybe it's not good. Yeah. Well, if it's any consolation, I think it's going to be a more urgent issue on the virtual friend side, uh, more broadly than it will be for <laughs> the image creation side in the short term. So you'll have some, you know, examples potentially to follow. You could chat with an image. In time, you'll be able to just like look at an image, look look at an, any inanimate object, and just talk talk to it. Like you can you can exa- encapsulate like an image of anything, like a chair, <laughs> like a really cool looking chair, and be like, I would like to talk to you. <laughs> you'll be able to talk to it. I mean, this is totally doable. I don't know. I don't know anyone that's doing it, but I think it's it's very possible. It's very. I think it's probably trivial to do if the chat people wanted to do it. Yeah. Character AI is kind of, is close to that. If not already there, I mean, their bots can, they do generate images. If you ask for that as part of the the chat and you can create a like, or upload, I believe like a profile photo for it. Um, And I don't know if that feeds into its personality in any way. I had kind of assumed it didn't, but maybe in, in fact it does. Well, like, like, so we know that like a, thou- a picture speaks a thousand words. And so like, if you type in like, you know, you're like, like for some words, like Benjamin Franklin, that's like very clear. There's a bunch of inter- data around Benjamin Franklin on the internet. Um, but if you wanted to do something like more esoteric, like, you have to like really describe the character, I wonder. And that's like pretty low dimensionality. Like the human, the, the, the la- English language doesn't actually have that much dimensionality to it. Right. But if you take an image, an image has like incredible dimensionality to it. Everything about the chair and the colors and like, I just would find that really interesting, but I haven't seen anyone try it out. I, I'm excited to see someone try it out. Not, not that we're going to build like a chat feature. To play around. <laughs> we can talk to our images, but it'd be really interesting as an, as a, as like an experiment. It's like a very like early web vibes type experiment, like something random that someone will do. Um, probably go viral. Yeah. I think actually that's a big part of my worldview right now is that all these different things are developing at a pretty amazing clip, but it's largely all happening in parallel. And, you know, I think we're going to obviously, you know, fully expect that we're going to continue to see research breakthroughs and, you know, fundamental techniques advance. But even kind of leaving that aside, it just seems like all these different things have not been really productized. You're doing that. But, you know, as you said, it's only been a couple months. Um, they certainly haven't been like refined and fully hammered into shape, you know, for a general public audience quite yet. And then maybe most importantly, they haven't been integrated. So, you know, you've got all these little islands of like awesome AI functionality, but very few, you know, even have the time to zoom out and kind of try to get a, a broad survey of that landscape let alone, you know, has any of the work started to integrate these things in, in all the ways that will eventually happen. So I totally think you're onto something there that like you generate an image, next thing you know, it's a character. And, you know, that, that kind of recombining, you know, call it ensembling, call it 
um, you know, integrating. I think that's going to be a huge driver of change over the next few years. And we're just starting to see that. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think there's going to be this moment that's going to, I don't know if it will be an important moment, but I think there'll be this moment that's very similar and akin to the internet mashups of web 2.0, where people would like take Google maps and they would combine it with Flickr and then Yelp. And then you get like this interesting, weird app. That's like the combination of these three services. You can totally do that with AI models. Um, you know, you can combine a playground image with like chat GPT and then combine that with like something else. And, you get these like really intricate products as a result. And so I think that the age of like the AI internet mashup will come back. Um, I think we're already starting to see some of that. Um, you know, there's like random hackers just like messing around, making weird things. And the problem is you don't know what will actually like stick and be big and important. Um, I think that a lot of people are going to start to move up towards making apps because it's uh, too complicated and too expensive to like focus on core foundational AI research. It requires a lot. It's it requires a lot more knowledge than just like taking the fast AI course, fortunately. Um, as someone has done it, I, I still feel like I don't know a lot. Done even more than just that. Um, and so I think that there's there's gonna be a lot of applications, a lot of people experimenting. It's kind of like that moment in mobile where it was just a complete like wild west gold rush and nobody had a clue what was going to work. And so just all like thousands, tens of thousands of experiments occur simultaneously. And you, you end up getting things like Uber and, you know, whatnot. Um, and some things like grow really rapidly and then fall because they, they fall out of relevance. They didn't have good retention and some things just have this incredible lasting power, um, you know, for a decade. So feels like that will happen again. And I don't know, you just go to Hugging Face and look at models and there's just like thousands of them and they do all kinds of interesting things. And then, you know, a week later, there'll be like 10 more, <laughs> 10 more, like, you know, something called Blip2 came out yesterday and it's really exciting to me. It might be really boring to other people, but one of the demos they had for Blip2 was uh, that you could literally, actually Blip2 had the, had the thing that I just described, which was you could like, talk to the image <laughs> you could be like you could have a picture of obama being sad and you could be like why is obama sad <laughs> just try to describe like oh well you know there's a thing going on in the background and you know whatever um you know you could be like why is he sweating oh he's playing tennis and like whatever so um and blip was like an amazing model to do uh, image to caption which is really cool and so it just i haven't even experimented with blip 2 and its capabilities so there's just so much that is happening and the pace is so un is, is relentless. And I don't think the blip two thing was very popular, but I think it is actually a big deal. Probably. Yeah. You're talking to the right person about, uh, for singing the praises of blip. It's actually one of my favorite oh, okay, good. models uh, yeah, it's awesome. at Waymark, which is my company where we do uh, much more structured AI video creation. We work with like media companies, you know, for example, TV companies where the requirements are, you know, very rigid in terms of like, this must be a 30 second spot or it cannot air, you know, and it has to be 30 seconds to the frame or it just can't air, right? So we have a lot more kind of scaffolding in place and we're using AI to fill in that scaffolding, but the scaffolding is all kind of pre-constructed. Blip has been hugely valuable for us in terms of, um, we actually use the image text matching portion to 
figure out out of a user's images, which may be hundreds. Um, typically, these are you know small business advertisers, and they've got often hundreds of images that are in our product. And now we're generating with language models a script that you know tries to tell their story. We kind of give them you know a little prompt opportunity too, where they, we can unpack that into a full script. And then what images need to go with that? I've been a on a you know quite a quest to find the best um, models for solving that problem. Blip remains number one, and so you just uh, my my afternoon just got filled in uh, because Blip two is going to be um, is going to be of high interest to me for sure. Yeah, yeah. The the pace is like that. Yeah, it's like you wake up in the morning, have this idea of what you're going to do for the day, and then Blip two drops, and you're like, I'm going to erase the rest of my day. <laughs> Yeah, literally, I think that's just happening to me right now. So on the basic level, you're relatively new to this, right? So you've jumped in to a super fast moving field and tried to get to the edge of it as quickly as possible. I'd love to hear how you've done that, how you would encourage others to do that. And then if you're comfortable sharing a little bit on like, what is your kind of internal research agenda? You know, what kind of training strategies are you pursuing? And again, I know, you know, you won't uh, want to share all the details of that, but as much as you're comfortable with, we'd love to hear. Yeah, I can't share the can't share specifically the areas of research that we're working on just yet, or the techniques. But um, yeah, I mean, I have been I had probably taken you know a wide variety of like AI courses over the last like six or seven years. So a lot of it has been a little bit of a catch up or re review. Um, but even that stuff was pretty shallow. I would say it's not anywhere as deep as I feel like I've gone now. I think, you know, I think one way to kind of accelerate things, one way that I accelerated things was I just found AI mentors and like kind of bartered with them. Um, you know, I could barter knowledge about startups or whatever they want in in the world. And so I just had people that would help me basically get unstuck. And that sort of keeps changing. Now I have a team, so I don't need, AI, my team's already better than me. So I don't really need AI mentors anymore. They're just like a team. And it's really, I actually think the fastest way to learn is to build. Um, I, I really discourage people from binge watching YouTube videos of notable people doing AI courses. I think that is a very, that's a fine way to get a general sense of things and understand the industry and be able to talk somewhat intelligently about it. But I don't think, like, maybe it's good for like, if you're just like an investor or something. But I think it's probably not the right way to go if you want to actually do deeper research. Um, you know, something greater than just like calculating cosine similarity between embeddings or something. You know, if you want to do real fundamental research, I think you need to like write code. My maybe favorite, maybe I think the best YouTube series, the best series that I could recommend to early people early on. I think Kaparthi's new series is really really good. It didn't exist. When I was starting, like restarting out last year, I was doing the fast AI course. I really recommend Kaparthi's course because he just has a style that's like, he's a very humble guy and he goes through everything just like from the basics. You just need Python. He's not doing anything fancy. Um, and he just builds everything up. It might not be the best uh, way to learn if you prefer top-down learning. The fast AI course might get you more excited if you need to get more motivated. But those are the two things I would do. I think probably the most valuable thing, though, has been not working in isolation. I think for a long time, I was just grinding through in isolation learning. Um, 
But now that I have kind of like a team with me, it's really nice to like get on a call for like an hour and just talk to, you know, the research team about like some idea in my head or get some explanation of something or reading papers together. It's feels a little bit like you're in class or like you're in a study group. That's been really motivating. And then having a project in mind that really is motivating um, helps you, you know, want to stay up till like two o'clock in the morning just to get something done or watch the end of a train run. So and that, that's about as much as I could like advise at the moment. Obviously, you guys already had with Mighty, you know, a lot of hardcore engineering. And, you, you know, you talked earlier about co-locating your own servers and managing that on a, a level that most startups, you know, don't find to be uh, an attractive proposition. So you, you had deep uh, skills and capabilities there already. What have you found needed to change about your team? What, what were the skill sets that you were like? this is what we have to go out and add to our team for us to be competitive in this space. Yeah. Unfortunately, when we pivoted from mighty to playground, we did have to let a whole bunch of people go. Um, and they all like, I think almost all of them really understood. I mean, it was kind of like we had a band and if we and the band was fine for mighty, but then if the, if we moved everybody to playground, it was like, we had too many drummers on the band. So we were kind of like, what do we do with that? And so, you know, we quickly figured out that um, we definitely needed to make more space for a bigger AI research team. So we're actually still looking for like one very senior AI researcher. Um, we only have about like one, we only have one slot left to fill. But yeah, I mean, we were kind of like looking um, right now. I mean, it's kind of, a, I think a good, I think it's good to have a good team mix, like people that are like junior, people that are like very senior, people that are mid-level. I think it's good to have that team mix because then, you know, it's not like your a, your senior AI researchers feel like they have to do something. Like you might have like a valuable thing you want people to, you want to do as a company, but not everyone's excited to do it. So it's really good to have like a good team mix of people who's find different kinds of projects more interesting. That's one thing I, I do for every I do for all teams, not like something specific to AI research. The second thing is, um, I asked Sam for some advice from OpenAI. Um, I think back in like December, we had like a thirty minute conversation, or I was just like, "Hey, can you teach me?" the pitfalls and things of like how to run an AI research team. I, I don't know how to do this. I'm probably going to do badly. Can you, can you help me? Um, and I think, I think, you know, I learned a lot of things, but one of the things I was very curious about was to what extent you allow AI researchers to wander. Like I'm, I'm very like ship, let's ship things as rapidly as possible. Let's, you know, clarify scope. Let's figure out what we need to build quality move quickly. Um, but AI research is like, you know, Sam basically was like, yeah, stuff takes like 10 times longer than, you know, building a web app. And so I was really curious, how, how much do you allow people to kind of wander and meander? Because you might not get good results. Um, I, think, I think Greg Brockman, also at OpenAI, has like a tweet that I'll paraphrase. It's kind of like, you know, at first things like don't work at all and they keep not working. And then eventually it's like amazing something along those lines. He said it better than I'm saying it, but because he had to write it in tweet. But, um, but I think that, I think that, I, I think that's right. Um, I think that we're experiencing that. We don't have a lot of data points as much as they do, but um, we tend to let our researchers kind of wander probably a lot, probably not as much as open AI because open AI has like a really broad remit, but we care about like pixels and creative tools. So there's obviously like these guardrails, but for the most part, we're just, I don't know. It's like, you, you don't know. That's the, that's the reality of research and research is hard one. 
And so uh, we're just like looking for wins, looking for like treasure everywhere. Yeah, zooming out a bit, Suhail, um, earlier you were talking about how you uh, were exploring the idea maze. I'm curious if you were focused as a VC in the space, what would be your mental model be for what, what kinds of companies uh, you know, will endure or should I look to invest in versus which ones to perhaps uh, stay away from? They might create some value, but they won't, they won't capture it or, or be durable. Yeah, um, I have definitely been thinking about that. Um, definitely talking, actually having conversations with other VCs or friends. Um, and one thing that, so I've gone to a number of AI dinners, you know, people, people like, you know, the founders of like character mid journey or whoever. And, and then even people like AI, just engineers that work at some of those companies, very helpful to get like perspectives all over the place. And, you know, I would, we would kind of ask these questions of of like what matters here. Um, And so there's a general consensus that we're going to, if we haven't already, we're starting to run out of data that we can use from the public internet. Like maybe by the end of the year, largely we'll have like saturated all of that and partly um, there's uh, i think i think someone else said this um that a lot there's still a lot of data it's just privately held like it's probably like exponentially growing in in like a private ecosystem like mobile apps but a lot of public data is like limited and not not to mention like copyright issues and stuff like that might be like a whole nother um set of issues so you know i think the first thing is like having some advantage around data, I think is really critical. It might not be a enduring advantage for like a decade, but surely it can be a big advantage for like many years. Um, I think the second advantage is like, I think there's like a, de- I think there's like a space where like you could probably make a really amazing product that happens to use AI to build some kind of new consumer network effect, but we're not really seeing that yet. Like we're still using kind of the old ways with consumer, but there's probably some, some new tricks and it requires like a lot of experimentation as consumer does. Um, I don't know what that is, but like an example of like this not going well is AI avatars. And it might not be a fad actually, if it were power, if it were plugged into something that had um, a real distribution network and network effect. But so there's kind of this question of, could we have bootstrap something into a network effect with some novel way of using AI to solve some interesting problem for users. So I tend to look at like, I would find that really interesting. I think that like, there's some problems with like some of the foundation model focused companies. Um, you know, I think like the less generous thing I could say is that they're, they're like making APIs in search of a problem. And this approach of doing this might work fine if you are open AI and you have billions of dollars and you can pursue like 10 experiments at once, 10, you know, 10, 50, hundred million dollar experiments at once. And maybe you'll land um, with a product that has product market fit. Um, maybe that's chat GPT. I don't know. I don't know what those numbers look like, but I think that it could be really tough to do that unless you're, unless you're so well capitalized, like open AI, that that approach is not maybe replicable. And you might have to be, yeah, you might have to do the basics. Like we're not, we're not trying to replicate the open AI approach. We are making a product. We're trying to go from a product down to a foundation model, not a foundation model to a product. And we'll see if that works. Um, yeah. And I think, I, so I think, you know, it's, I think there's a lot of buzz around the idea that uh, there'll be mass, uh, will the large language models be commoditized? I think it's totally valid. Um, 
for a long time, I had that, I had that view that like basically the LLMs and everything will converge. They'll all be commodities. Where's the real business in this thing? But the deeper I go in trying to do research, the the more I realize how hard it is, how hard one it all is. And I'm not, I'm not as um, confident about that anymore. Like maybe, maybe over a very long time span, these things will inevitably, you know, all technology becomes obsolete over a long time scale. But I don't think that people, I, you know, I think people that just have a shallow sense of this research are underestimating the complexity of how you build these models and how difficult it is. Sure, stable diffusion can get trained for $600,000 on however many GPUs. But if you want to build something that endures and gets better, that requires very concerted investment instead of resources. You cannot just raise $100 million and say, boom, we've got a foundation model. You have to, you have to hire AI researchers. Like You have to find clever ideas. It's very hard. It's just like software in that way. It's not like you can paralyze everything with, with money. So, you know, I would just say, like, I'm, I'm not so sure that it'll be as commoditized as people think. Uh, but I think certainly, like, I think, like, the prior generation of the model, like, a, you know, like a GPT-2 or 3, it, it could be kind of like every two years, the model will get commoditized. But the, but the state-of-the-art model endures for those two years. That could be a world we live in. It's kind of like, it's a little, like, it's pretty similar to, like, CPUs. And the thing is, is that what customers want is the state-of-the-art thing. They often don't want the, um, you know, nobody's nobody wants to use GPT-2. <laughs> um, you want the, the best thing you can get because you have to compete with everybody and your competition is going to use the state-of-the-art. And so then, then there's kind of this argument around fine-tuning. Um, but even that argument, I think, is fairly weak because a lot of the things that you might fine-tune today uh, become not, you don't even need to use, you could use the, the new state of the art LLM model and it can do what you previously could do with fine tuning without fine tuning. Um, and so I think people don't fully internalize that the fine tuning thing is, is also not as defensible, but if I were VC, you know, the other thing I would consider is like, if the company has something that they can fine tune on that is private data, that could be really defensible. So um, there are a couple like valid and valid things, but um, yeah, I think data, real hardware AI research, network effects, all those, all those things are largely like kind of the same from traditional software still, I think, apply in this world. So you've got an 18 month old kid. Uh, what do you think their life is going to look like when they are your age? What does 2050 look like in your mind? Gosh, um, sometimes my wife and I have this conversation of like, what thing could occur in the future that would make us feel uncomfortable, you know, like in our era. And I think like the answer to that would be like, I think I've answered this as like, what if my son wanted to marry an AI or something? And I'm like, I don't know how I would feel about it. I feel deeply uncomfortable. I think right now. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I just, I just think like the most weird thing will just be like, your my kid will be like friends with some, AI robot thing and he won't go outside and he'll be really obsessed with it. And we'll be like, shouldn't you get like real friends? And, um, you know, and it'll be this like very, you know, it's like, it's like when my parents saw me on the internet all the time, they must've just like thought I was probably getting into trouble, which I was and, um, doing bad things. And, you know, 
I just think that, you know, it's, it's just, it's crazy. It's just, you could, you could just be, you could be, you could totally see kids just chatting with like some random AI thing. It'd be like the most interesting conversation they've ever had. It's unlimited and it's always interested in you. And, you know, it's giving you like really cool um, insights to life. And I mean, I don't know. I mean, humans, humans have, don't have unlimited energy. So I don't know. What if my son just like, Maybe he, maybe some of his friends, some of his best friends will be AI things. And that'll be just so weird to me. He'll be like, you don't get it, dad. (laughs) Yeah, he'll be like, you don't get it. You know, this isn't real, right? (laughs) And then there'll be something that's like more advanced than the Turing test, you know, probably at that point. And he'll reference that. (laughs) It'll be like deeply philosophical. I mean, the other crazy thing could be uh, that I told some friends a couple weeks ago that it doesn't seem too far off that we'll have like the first like AI religion. And the crazy thing is that you can talk to your God and your God will give you answers. Um, yeah. So what if my son like joined, you know, some new religious AI spaghetti monster uh, religion, <laughs> but you can talk to the spaghetti monster and, I mean, it could be like a really positive thing for humanity. It could have good values and principles, but we, we would all just be like, but you know, this isn't, real right and they'd be like offensive (laughs) um anyway that would be the other weird thing yeah i think that's a great place to 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 wrap this uh this podcast and and aptly named the the cognitive revolution uh thanks so much for, for for joining us today yeah thank you for having me